HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My Family Recipe is a new podcast from Food52 and Heritage Radio Network, bringing you cherished heirloom recipes and the stories behind them. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten, the Gastronomica podcast on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Krishnendu Ray. This episode is part of a series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal of Food Studies. Our fall 2021 issue on global gastropolitics features articles on taste, ingredients, palates, and about power from different times and places. For the next several weeks, join hosts from Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we talk uh, to the authors. My guest today is Sucharita Kanjilal. Uh, Sucharita is completing her PhD in Anthro at UCLA. And her research is on caste, domesticity, and public culture in India, which looks at the anthropology of food and media. And maybe we'll get a, ch- a bit of a chance to talk to her about it today, too. Today, primarily, uh, we will be talking um, about her recent piece in Gastronomica, which is titled Beyond Bourdieu: What Tomatoes in Indian Recipes ta- Tell Us About Taste. So thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Thanks, Krishna Hindu. Uh, Sujarita, first tell us, our audience, where are you right now and what are you up to? Uh, okay, so I am in Mumbai, uh, the city where I grew up, and I am here doing my fieldwork for my PhD in anthropology. Um, most of my fieldwork is remote as of now. Um, as vaccination rates improve in India, I'll, I'll start to do in-person fieldwork again. Uh, but it's it's uh, the fieldwork for my PhD dissertation, which is as you described about food and public cultures and domesticity, caste religion uh, in India. How, how are you doing the uh, like field work there right now in some ways remotely? What, what, what kind of work does it entail? Yeah, uh, so the people that I follow um, as my interlocutors are uh, participants in what they now call the creator economy. Uh, so it's bloggers, influencers, people who produce food media, and usually women housewives who are producing a lot of food media in India right now. Uh, and so remote fieldwork for me, um, it's been quite lucky since my project was already digitally kind of located. Uh, and so I didn't have to change my methods too drastically. But remote fieldwork generally involves lurking uh, in these online spaces uh, in which all of these people interact. Um, 
being in Zoom calls with them, being in their WhatsApp groups, being in uh, online workshops and webinars, and at some point, eventually meeting them in person, being in their homes, uh, in their kitchens. So that's that's what the field work is going to be. But at the moment, it's all remote. I see. So you are going to get into their homes and uh, look and cook yeah. with them and look at their cooking. I see. Absolutely. And right now, you're just looking at the, their kind of media representations of themselves and their cooking, right? Uh, in part, their representations, but also, I, I mean, I do talk to them a lot and I talk to their friends and their family. And so it's more traditional ethnography in that sense. It's not an analysis of the texts they produce, but the context in which they are producing those texts. I see. Uh, okay, so let's kind of uh, dive in a little bit into your um, uh, gastronomica piece. Uh, to repeat, it's called um, uh, Beyond Bajia, What Tomatoes in Indian Recipes Tell Us About Taste. A couple of things. In fact, let's start with that uh, title. Mm, why Beyond Bajia? Yeah, so the reason that I wrote this paper and I think other graduate students will be will empathize is that it was it was actually one of my qualifying examinations for my PhD. So it was essentially a lit review of something that was related to my topic. Um, and I was doing a lot of reading on taste, uh, which is a kind of central theme in anything that's food related, but also anything that's media related. And, and taste kind of brings the food and the media together in this beautiful way. And so I was doing a lot of reading on what, how people have come to understand taste. And I found often in food studies, especially, and in the anthropology of food, the conversation tends to begin and end in Bourdieu. Um, and in, in the notion of taste being tied to your class position and, and reproducing that class position. And I just found, especially in this kind of very rhizomatic, very mixed group of interlocutors I have and the things that they talk about, um, that, that framework while very generative for so many people, just didn't work in my case. It, it wasn't, it didn't go far enough. And it, it certainly was not able to capture the sense of flux that is so much a part of taste practices in, in India right now, in the digital kind of gastroscape, as I sometimes call it. Um, and so I, I set out to see what else can be said or how else we can start to think about taste. Um, and the paper that I wrote came out of that. Would it be right to say that in some ways you are saying uh, Boudier is useful but does not exhaust uh, exhaust the um, kind Absolutely. of a theoretical aperture? I see. I Absolutely. see. Good. Yes. And, um, and uh, in terms of the rest of your title, which gives you a sense to the audience, most of the audience would not have read the piece. Mm -hmm. uh, it's tomatoes and Indian recipes tell us about taste. Why tomatoes and why Indian recipes and what are you trying to do in that article uh, in yeah. the terms of the relationship between the two? So the reason I chose um, these two seemingly disparate objects, uh, one is, is a commodity and one is a kind of form or a, a textual form, uh, was because I wanted to explore taste at those two different levels, one in terms of something that you might physically taste and another as a method of of producing and, and reproducing and circulating taste. Um, and so I use them as, as kind of empirical examples for what is in the paper, it starts out as a, as a theoretical study, almost like a lit review, uh, but I wanted to ground it in something that was very tangible. Um, and some of the research that I've done before uh, 
uh, and especially for my master's, was on um, you know the genealogy of recipe writing in India, starting from colonial cookbooks. Really, is when recipes started to be mass produced, and and into the 20th century and the 21st century. So, um, I did. I had a lot of this material already in terms of what recipe books were saying. I had you know my own little archive of them, um, and I wanted to read them a little bit against the grain. Um, so it's not necessarily a study of what every recipe book tells you about what people are eating at a time, but something, a very specific story that I was able to put together in tracing just a single commodity through those books, but also tracing those books themselves and to see how they changed and who was writing them and, and who was not writing them. Uh, and that's how I, so I used the empirical material I had from you know, historical work I've done in the British Library um, and combined it with this lit review I was doing for an exam to produce the paper that, that's in the journal now. Excellent. So uh, let's give our audience a sense. When do tomatoes uh, come to India and how do they come to India? Right. So I think that this is a story that, that in fact has become fairly familiar to people who follow food, the, the story of new world versus old world crops. And it's it's a dazzling story to tell, oh, you know, this thing, chilies weren't even in Thailand till 500 years ago. And we expect all Thai food to be spicy, something like that. Uh, and so with tomatoes follow a similar story of a colonial crop, a crop that came from uh, the Americas post-Columbus. Uh, it travels to Europe it, and then eventually comes to India. Uh, some people think that it came to India uh, in the 1600s with the Portuguese, but it really doesn't show up very much at all till about about the 1800s and the and even the late 1800s as a regular crop. Uh, but when I say regular, it shows up as a crop that British colonial officers who were stationed in India at the time, it was a crop that the British were eating in India. So it was considered an English vegetable and sometimes referred to as Vilayati Bengan or foreign eggplant uh, because it resembled the eggplant and the eggplant was a, was a, uh, was a crop that was grown in India already. Uh, so the late 1800s is when the tomato starts to be grown in India in any sort of prominent way. And then by the early 20th century, it starts to spread from British kitchens into the kitchens of usually Indian elite. Um, and by the mid 20th century, you suddenly find this kind of explosion in, in, in tomato production and consumption. And um, and now India is the second largest uh, grower and consumer of tomatoes in the world. Yeah. Wow. India is the second largest grower and consumer of tomatoes. Um, mm -hmm. So to, to kind of, uh, so it pro you're saying probably it came with the Portuguese around 1600, but we don't see extensive uh, availability of it or even visibility of it mm -hmm. until the late uh, 19th century. So would it be right to say uh, tomatoes are a very 20th century phenomena in absolutely, India? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Even... Um, mid-20th century, even early 20th century, Indians weren't really eating tomatoes all that much. So maybe um, 50, 70 years uh, old in India. Absolutely. And you would, of course, see it. I mean, it's absolutely ubiquitous in Indian food now. Right. Okay. And what about recipes? So what what is a bit, tell us, break it down a little for us, the history of recipe writing um, uh, in India. Sure. So the way that I've traced the history of recipe writing, and I'm sure there would be others who would tell this story a little differently, uh, but I was focused on mass recipes that were 
written for mass consumption rather than recipes that were written for, say, intergenerational, you know, in little notebooks and families that were being passed down, or recipes that were written in either religious texts or um, royal texts. So um, the the history that I'm tracing is the mass-produced recipe. Uh, so in in the Indian kind of lexicon, recipes were were written in in kings' palaces by their courtiers, by their chefs, and also recipes were written in religious books that had all that described the moral properties of cooking and eating. Uh, but in terms of this kind of recipes for a pub, for public consumption. Uh, those were produced largely starting in the 1700s, but really in the 1800s when the British set up different presses in the different uh, prince, uh, in the different parts of India that they were setting up their you know centers in. So in Madras, in, in Bombay, in Calcutta, and so recipe books started being printed out of these centers, out of these presses. Uh, and the original ones or the, the early ones were largely written by British officers and their wives who were in this new place. Um, they were bemused by the, the kind of ingredients and also the kinds of um, climate that they were living in and didn't know what to do with it. And so um, a whole lot of them started writing these recipe books, which were seen as household manuals, recipe books, and also guidebooks on how to manage their retinue of Indian staff and servants. Um, and that's where you start to find recipes written for, you know, a lot of British dishes, but because they were in India, they were starting to eat a lot of Indian food. Um, and so you can see the kind of hybrid Indian-British ingredients, methods kind of melding together in these early books. And then once Indians started getting involved in these printing presses, Indians started writing recipes for themselves in this, in this mass way from these presses and then slowly from their vernacular presses, which were you know, recipe books in, say, Tamil or Bengali or Gujarati, which were coming out um, as part of all of this literature that's produced in the kind of late uh, late 1900s, 1800s, um, excuse me, late 1800s, uh, which was also very much part of the anti-colonial effort. So as Indians start producing literature in local languages as part of a kind of nationalist awakening, um, Alongside that and through that, they also start producing Indian recipes saying, you know, this is the food of what we eat. Um, and as, as I've written in the paper, the people writing these recipes, Indian recipes at this time, are usually the cultural elite, uh, people with access to literacy. Recipes, of course, presume that you are literate, you can read and write. Um, and they started out being upper caste men and then slowly upper caste women who, again, uh, had access to schooling and education and writing. Uh, and then it starts to become more uh, like more of a mass phenomenon by the 50s and 60s where, you know, the, the, the gamut of recipe writers starts to expand, include more kinds of people. Um, yeah. And then it from, from these vernacular recipe books, it becomes, you know, mass produced published cookbooks in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And then you start to get the TV shows, with, which are also about recipes, which you've written about. And then, of course, with the internet, you have this um, real, like, explosion, again, of, of recipes now being produced by really anyone. So, uh, right to say, then, that uh, in terms of uh, mass-produced recipes, separate from the royal and the religious form, and also intimate uh, transmission of recipes within households is uh, quite 
substantially an Anglo uh, practice um, in the 19th century. And then, um, and then, uh, and also masculine, right? Yeah, originally, it was certainly a very masculine endeavor because um, the early recipe books and household manuals were really trying to espouse this kind of enlightenment value of of domestic economy, uh, where it was essentially men instructing women on how to run a household in the most rational, scientific, um, economic way. Um, And so in that sense, these were texts that were being produced from a very particular slant of colonial thought. Um, And then slowly women start writing these recipes too. And then they become an extremely feminized genre. And as soon as they, you know, they start moving into women's magazines, they move into uh, afternoon programming on TV, and then recipes become quite a feminized uh, text, recipe books. Uh, But originally they were mostly men uh, who were, essentially telling women what to do in the household. Yeah, is that is that uh, surprising? Is that uh, something, uh, of course, this is taking you out of your um, area of expertise probably. Is that exceptional in terms of global comparative terms that men are writing, first British men and then Indian men uh, by the end of the 19th century are writing these uh, cookbooks? In some ways, it becomes a site of contestation uh, about the British imaginary of about India and then partly, as you say, the Indian nationalist and anti-colonial kind of a sense. Is it exceptional that all these men are getting entangled in cooking? And presumably these men have probably not cooked themselves ever. Right. I, I think it's, an, it's a fascinating question. I think Judith Walsh has a wonderful book called uh, What Women Learned When Men Gave Them Advice on Dom- Domesticity in Colonial India. Uh, but I think it's it's a little bit surprising if you if you imagine that yes, men were probably not entering the kitchens themselves to cook. Uh, but it's less surprising when you when you think about all the kind of intimate practices that are part of the colonial project. You, I mean, if you are going to set up colonial administration, you have to also then set up a huge household which uh, will entertain guests, which will entertain officers from all over the world, which and where the men have uh, very exacting standards for how uh, that household needs to be run. And so the household is being run kind of like a mini empire, but just in this intimate domestic setting. And so when you see these books, the recipes are certainly one part of them. Uh, but really, these are books about managing a staff, uh, and so they have extensive pages on what to do with your cook, what to do with your butler, what to do with your cleaner, how much to pay them. There's, there, there are books of accounts, there are books of uh, monthly budgets on you know, what to spend on ingredients, what to spend on ironing. And so in terms of just how um, you know, instrumental and economically um, slanted they are, uh, the kind of notion of, of of a rational scientific man telling you how to run your household actually seems to fit fairly well in in my experience of reading these books, um, and of course the access to writing and and accounting, and so in in that sense that that kind of paradox it coexists of course in this book that there are men writing cookbooks, uh, but when you think of them as manuals or advice books, uh, then it, it's a little less surprising. I see. So it's in some ways manuals of economic management of households that in some ways uh, uh, 
uh, like disciplines uh, like uh, home economics later we exactly. try to do at the end in the US, for instance, right. at the end of the 19th and the early 20th century. Okay, fantastic. Hey, um, this is fascinating. Uh, uh, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. Good food is worth a thousand words. This is Arthi Menon, and I'm delighted to share a new podcast with you. My Family Recipe from Food 52 and Heritage Radio Network. Adapted from Food 52's much-loved column of the same name, the My Family Recipe podcast will bring its pages to life. Each episode of My Family Recipe brings you a cherished heirloom recipe and the story behind it from voices across the world of food. We'd open these tubs of dough and they would exhaust these incredible yeasty fumes and it just smelled like nothing else. It was so intoxicating. I'll interview writers and chefs, parents and children about what's passed down along with the foods that we know and love. Chinese people aren't like born with a download on how to like velvet chicken. You know, like that's not something that just like comes to you. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we are back. Uh, this is Meant to be Eaten with Krishnandu Ray talking to Sucharita Kanjilal uh, about her article, Beyond Bourdieu, What Tomatoes in Indian Recipes Tell Us About Taste, which is available in, in issue 21.3 of Gastronomica, which is the journal of uh, food studies. So welcome back, Sucharita. Thank you. We were talking about uh, tomatoes and we were talking about recipes, the birth of tomatoes and recipes. And one of the things you pointed out is how tomatoes in parts of India, which has, of course, many languages, uh, was called uh, uh, Bangan, right? Which is yeah. basically for an eggplant. In fact, that, that stimulated my, um, uh, my mother tongue is Odia. My mm-hmm. Odia grandmother uh, uh, used to call, in fact, uh, she dry, died at the age of 100. She used to call them Bilaiti Baigona, which is the mm-hmm. Odia version of it. Uh, and this is also, uh, which of course is linked also to this word Vilayati is, I think, has a Persianate origin, which right. is an interesting story, right? right? In India, how Sanskrit gets superimposed with Persian, which gets superimposed with English in terms of uh, elite cosmopolitan languages. And I think it is Su- uh, Sanjay Subramaniam somewhere, he talks about Persianization of the Bay of Bengal. So the amount mm-hmm. of Persian words... And this kind of a classification of Vilayati. Vilayati means, of course, foreign, looking right. at it from the east coast of India. Your, your your piece really stimulated the stories of my two grandmothers, my Odia grandmother and my Bengali <laughs> grandmother and their languages from a small town in Odisha called <laughs> Balasore, uh, which is about, what, 200 kilometers south um, of uh, uh, Kolkata. So anyway, so I, I just wanted to point, underline that, that your article is kind of stimulates, uh, stimulated for me this kind of a re memory of uh, my grandmother's language. Right. I, you know, it's, it's interesting because I've heard that story now from, you know, a few other people who read the article, some of my friends that I told about it, where it's, it's a kind of memory that's, that's just out of reach, but, but also always slightly available because people of my generation who are also extremely interested in food uh, might not have known that story specifically, but then they'll say, oh, you know, when I think about it, on religious days, my grandmother doesn't use tomatoes in cooking. 
And I exactly, wonder if right? this is why. In the, yeah. In in the in the religious ritual, they're often potatoes are excluded, tomatoes are excluded, right. chilies are excluded, and you will see that kind of that memory of how societies remember uh, in their ritualized, in some ways, I would say ritualized sedimentation almost right. of generations of stuff. Absolutely fascinating. Hey, uh, in terms of these two things now, now we have some sense of when tomatoes are coming in, how they're coming in, uh, the, the class structure of it. We have mm-hmm. some sense of recipe, recipe writing, uh, gender, in some ways, governance, governmentality of the household, household economy. Now, right. how do you bring these two things together in the article and what what? is for our audience some of the most interesting things to take away from this, say, the instance of a history of the use of tomato in Indian food and or the history of recipes. What might be the relationship between the two and how? what is the best way to illuminate some of that? Yeah, so I think in terms of the article, there's, there's the question of method. Of course, I use recipes to trace the history of, of the popular use of tomatoes. Uh, so when I'm making a kind of historical argument, the recipes and the recipe books are my archival material, uh, which I'm drawing on. Uh, but conversely, when you think about how recent both of these things are, and they come out of very similar projects, they both come out of the project of colonialism, the project of certain colonial technologies. For the recipe book, it's the printing press coming to India. For the tomatoes, it's agricultural sciences and agricultural technology that makes the tomato a very viable crop in this uh, particular set of geographies. Um, So what they have in common is both the colonial project and the kind of practices and technologies that the colonial project makes possible and also the kind of hybridization or the, the borrowing and sharing. So tomatoes get incorporated into what one would think of as very Indian dishes, like dals or like um, sour curries. And recipes get incorporated into a very, you know, into logics of cooking that already existed. So it's not, it's not, it's something that gets adopted in a new place. And that's why the change in taste and the Beyond Bordeaux became, you know, important to me because what Bordeaux doesn't answer well for me um, is how do tastes change? He answers extremely well why people use high taste or discourses of high taste to, you know, show their class status, to show off their eliteness, their cultural capital. But he's not really able to explain to me what happens when a new taste comes to town and why do people adopt it? And the, and the question of recipes and tomatoes to me were, were intertwined in a way that they answer that question well. So they do tell us when when a new taste-making object comes into a different geography, a different set of cultures, and gets taken up, in this case, colonialism, colonial practices. At the same time, when you get to the mid-20th century, both tomatoes and recipes really take off uh, from extremely elite projects or, or objects of consumption to more uh, middle class, more the, you know mass objects of consumption. And that, of course in my analysis, is is tied to the post-colonial Indian state and what it was doing with agriculture, what it was doing with, you know, promoting a kind of vitamin-rich diet, which tomatoes, you know, are full of, but also with promoting new forms of kind of nationalist cultural products, which is uh, recipe books and cookbooks. And, of course, the anthropologist Arjuna Padurai has a a wonderful essay about uh, nationalism and post-colonialism and 
the Indian cookbook and the, the creation of a cuisine. So for me, the, the tomatoes and the recipe books simultaneously answer the question of, you know, what do you do uh, beyond Bordeaux uh, when you think of changing tastes, but also gets to kind of the broader questions of what's happening in a place, uh, what are the connections between you know, kind of colonial technologies of gov- governance and post-colonial technologies of governance. So um, that's how I've tried to bring them together in the article, of course, with some other um, aspects. You know, I'm, I'm interested in affect, which I think is an important part of taste. I'm interested in mediation as a, as a scholar of media. And yeah, so that that's, that's kind of the bent of the article. Hey, uh, for say, uh, can we take something like, say, chicken tikka masala that many right. would be familiar with globally today. It's kind of this global South Asian food today. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- uh, would it be illuminating to look at it uh, through your uh, kind of analytics, uh, something like uh, chicken tikka masala? Where does it come from? Uh, right. What does it incorporate? How does it spread? Could you tell us that story a bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I think in the in the essay, I use the example of butter chicken, you know, cousin of, of chicken tikka masala to tell a similar story, um, which is, you know, how does a food that was only invented, you know, at max 70, 80 years ago, come to stand in as kind of the prototype of an entire cuisine, right, of a, the cuisine of the whole nation. Uh, and when you think about kind of the, you know, the schematic that I've drawn up in the essay, the theoretical schematic, there's the, you know, the fact that for something to become popular like that, it A, has to have uh, you know, some relationship to political economy. So, for instance, you have to be able to grow tomatoes profitably and in large quantities for tomatoes to become a big part of the diet. And chicken tikka masala, of course, uses a lot of tomatoes in the recipe. Um, and the next thing I say is that um, there has to be an aspect of mediation. So there has to be some way for that kind of new taste to be mediated mediated across a large population. It can't just be, you know, the one uh, food nerd gourmand somewhere who's discovered an ingredient and is eating it by themselves. There has to be kind of mass mediation of that thing. So with chicken tikka masala, of course, uh, it's the setting up of all of these restaurants with chicken tikka masala in, in England, but in, in India uh, with butter chicken, it's the setting up of this one restaurant in Delhi that becomes very popular for its butter chicken recipe. And by word of mouth, that that kind of recipe goes out and people start making. Hey, these what is that? Name that restaurant. Oh, that restaurant uh, in in popular histories, and these are always contested. So I just want to preface that by saying that. But uh, this restaurant is called Moti Mahal. It's in Delhi, um, New Delhi. And so, yeah, so so it involves an aspect of mediation. It has to be, you know, profitable and politically viable. And then the last part that I talk about is it has to have a kind of affective resonance in a place. If something is considered too distasteful or too much in opposition to a certain sense of well-being, um, then in my understanding, that would not be adopted as, as a mass taste. So for, by, by that, I mean tomatoes were seen as quite close to something that was already Indian, the eggplant that we talked about. Uh, at the same time, because it's vegetarian, uh, it was not likely to offend you know, caste sensibilities, which, which, which determine so much what people eat and don't eat or are allowed to eat and not allowed to eat. And because it was a vegetarian, it was just a you know, vegetable food. Um, it people did not outright reject it in a way that they would have, say, rejected, let's say, horse meat or 
that they continue to reject in some ways people in india are weak right so taking these three things together you can think of why something like chicken tikka masala uh, of course the story of chicken is a different one in india where even vegetarians tend to eat chicken uh, these days but taking these three things together it it provides a kind of a broader view of why something would or would not be taken up by you know a new group of people who've been introduced to a new taste so good so we have some sense of the effect now as to uh, i understand what that means in terms of resonance in terms of mediation kind of elaborate a little uh, is it saying that how does something small scale intimate private becomes mm-hmm. mass scale and what is that what is that story exactly uh, in in this particular case right so i so in the case of the tomato uh, the aspect of mediation it's an interesting one because um it's the hardest to trace in some ways so when i trace them trace tomatoes through the recipe books you can see that they start to become more and more popular in everyday dishes um through the you know 20th century but in terms of trying to think about how did people learn about tomatoes how did people even know that this ingredient exists um you have to start looking at different sources and and one of the sources that i started finding was of course agricultural manuals and um training guides for farmers who were being encouraged to grow tomatoes by the indian agricultural research institute um and so when a lot of farmers start growing tomatoes there's it creates this kind of a, a kind of public where people now are introduced to um introduced to a new ingredient be- simply because there's an amplification in how many people know about it so when i say mediation it doesn't have to be through a text uh it can of course be oral it can be transmitted uh in a community uh but to my mind the the mediation of kind of the different properties of tomatoes both as an agricultural good that could be profitably grown but also as a as a health giving new health giving fruit or food uh rich in vitamin c at the time when vitamins had just been discovered especially vitamin c in the 1930s uh and tomatoes were being promoted by you know everyone from agriculturists horticulturists to you know local government says oh this is a healthy thing to give to your children this is a healthy thing to feed to your family uh and so without that kind of without these different avenues for mediation it's it's really hard for a particular kind of food uh to take off you know in in a kind of public imagination excellent uh and in fact i was going to ask you a question about um, your research methods too it was good that you illum- uh, illuminated some of this what i like about this piece of yours is it engages both with the question of how to produce tomatoes agriculturally mm-hmm. the political economic question and its availability supply side question which is often ignored in a lot of the analysis of consumption consumerism mm-hmm. etc and it brings the two together and of course uh, because we have run out of time today I hope uh, the audience will take a chance uh, to uh, look at uh, your article uh, in Gastronomica. And so let me let me just start by saying uh, uh, so thank you Sucharita uh, for joining us and listeners can read the full article in Gastronomica the Journal of Food Studies uh, volume 21.3 and for more details visit gastronomica.org. Uh, join us next week uh, for more on gastropolitics as we talk to Stephen Velasquez about art and activism. Thank you. Thank you.